morning. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and, God and goodness. Through, this, through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever, whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A reading from Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Life is not easy when you don't have the right tools. As many of you know, Sarah and I just celebrated our 10th anniversary, and I can remember running into such a problem on our honeymoon. Now, just a caveat here, we were young. She was 20 and I was 21. And at that time... I hardly knew a lick about cars. So when our luxurious 2000 Toyota Camry developed an exhaust leak in the course of our travels, I figured I could restore our serenity by patching it with Gorilla Tape. <laughs> well, it, it worked for a couple of minutes before it quickly melted away. And we were stuck with the noise. More recently, I had trouble with one of our kitchen drawers coming apart. Uh, I don't have a ton of tools, and so I tried working with the hammer and nails I had. Now, I didn't start swearing, but you can believe I began huffing and puffing when I tried to nail a boy together and just kept falling apart. The only way we got the car fixed was by bringing it to the shop. The only way I got that drawer fixed was by buying a nail gun, support brackets, and wood glue. You only succeed if you have the tools you need. As human beings, we have failed in being human. We say that to err is human, but God did not create us to be failures. This is why we live in perpetual disappointment. Things are not the way they are supposed to be. Human beings are not who they are supposed to be. We know it in our bones, even as you and I fall short ourselves. We have failed not because God didn't give us what we needed in the beginning, but because we rejected what we needed. We rejected Him who we needed, God Himself. Human misery is the fruit of godlessness, of trying to live life without God. But something has happened. God the Son has come alongside us. 
He became a human being like us. And Jesus has succeeded where we have failed. He offers us a new start as new human beings. Humanity 2.0 because he is the new Adam. In the letter of 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter reminds us of this redemption and the hope that we have so that we might persevere in the face of suffering. Now here in 2 Peter, the Apostle is writing again. He is writing so that we don't forget who we are in Jesus. He doesn't want us to stumble and fall away from the faith. He wants us to live the new life that is ours in Jesus Christ. And his emphasis here in the first 11 verses is that God has given us everything we need to live that new life. And it's all because of Jesus. Right out of the gate, we see this in verse 1. Simon Peter identifies himself as a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, notice how humbly Peter identifies himself. Not first as an apostle, but rather first as a servant. That's his first and primary identity. He is simply a servant of Jesus Christ. He is an apostle. He does have an important calling. But like all of us, he counts himself a servant of Jesus Christ. Peter is speaking to, to a, a rather broad audience, it seems here. He doesn't say the area that he's sending this letter to, as though you know, the church is in Asia Minor, though it's fair to suppose that he's writing to them. It does seem that he's speaking especially to Gentile Christians here, because he says in this verse, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. And so the question is, is who is the ours there? It seems as though Peter may be speaking from his vantage point as a Jewish Christian and of how the Gentiles have been brought into the faith of Abraham, the covenant people. And what he keys in on here is that the faith is the same because it's a righteousness that comes from God and not from themselves. This is what makes both Jew and Gentile equal. Their equality before God is not because they share the same blood, but because they share the same faith in Jesus Christ. And so the righteousness that they enjoy is the same because it's a righteousness that comes from Christ alone. And this is what Paul keys in on in his letter to the Romans, in Romans 3, 21-24. He makes clear this equality. He says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This is the righteousness given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. So, even while Peter is perhaps keying in on the Gentile Christians here, he's talking to all those who have faith, Jew and Gentile alike, because what they have in common is this faith in Jesus Christ by which they are counted righteous. For both Jew and Gentile, Jesus is the Savior. And what's interesting here to just kind of note is when Peter speaks of Jesus, he says that not only is He our Savior, he says to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's important to remember that Jesus is not only fully human, He is fully divine. And that's utterly necessary for the work of salvation. Because, as we know, as we've stated at the beginning, 
human beings have been corrupted by the fall. There is no salvation coming from below. We try and try again. We try to look to various human beings to be kind of messianic sorts of figures. But none of them can deliver because they too themselves are corrupted. What sets Jesus apart is that he is fully human. He is truly human. But he's not corrupted by sin. Because he is God incarnate. And so he is able to save. And by sacrificing himself, by offering his life, He offers a gift, a ransom, which is priceless. Because he is God himself who laid down his life for our sakes. And so, this shared faith that Jew and Gentile enjoy, the salvation they enjoy in Jesus Christ, comes with this benefit that Peter wishes for them in verse 2. He says, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of, our, of Jesus our Lord. And he says, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And the thing that we have to understand here is that the knowledge that Peter is speaking of here is not just merely a rational sort of knowledge, as though of the sort of knowledge where you could acknowledge the existence of of the sun, or of the trees. This is a personal sort of knowledge. This is the sort of knowledge, the intimate sort of knowledge that we were referring to when on our website, which I have an image of that, I believe, you know, we say kind of our, the ethos, the mission of our church is to know God and to make God known. When we're talking about knowledge there, we're not just merely speaking educationally as though we just wanted people had a bunch of theological knowledge. Theology is great. But theology is only a means to an end. Theology is the means to the end of knowing the God of all creation. See, what Jesus makes possible is for you to truly be a friend of God. To truly be a son and daughter of God. And our mission is not only that we all of us here in this room, we get to enjoy that relationship, but that all our neighbors would come to know God in that kind of way, that all Rhode Islanders would come to know God in that sort of way, that all the nations would know God in just that kind of way. And we do get to know God in that kind of way if we have faith in Jesus Christ. Knowing God in this kind of way is, is the very essence of salvation. It's the end for which we've been saved. Jesus says this in John 17, 3. He says, now this is eternal life. And he's praying to the Father here. That they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. When you truly know God things won't stay the same in your life. When you truly know God, you will be changed. You won't be who you once were. Because when you know God, you will know His power in your life. Peter continues on in verse 3. He says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory in goodness. The way in which we are able to live a godly life is through our knowledge of Him. He makes it possible. It's by knowing Him that we gain access to divine power that gives us everything that we need to live the sorts of lives that God created us to live. And what Peter says here is that this knowledge of God is not something that is self-inspired, as though it's something that is 
kind of the belongings of those who have great intellect. No, he says it's we come to know God because God has called us. Our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Paul makes it utterly clear that it's not because of us that we come to this knowledge of God in 2 Timothy 1, verses 9-10. through Paul says there, he says, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. God calls us to faith in Jesus Christ, not because you're a great woman, you're a great man. It's because of God's own purpose and grace that He calls us. It's because God's making a people for Himself. This is how God's calling has always worked. He didn't call the people of Israel because they were a great and mighty nation, but because they were weak and small. And through them, He would manifest His glory. And the same continues to be true of us today. Our calling is only a grace that we receive from God. Now this knowledge that we have by grace, this knowledge that we gain through faith in Jesus Christ, gives us power from God so that we would be godly. Now, I think sometimes when we just hear godly, we just say, okay, righteous, you know, be a good person. And that's true, because those are characteristic of God. But I think it's really helpful to really just meditate on that word godly. Think of what it means. It means to be godlike. Consider that God's purpose is that you would be godlike. John Calvin, commenting on, on these verses, says this. And John Calvin was a reformer who, a Protestant reformer who lived like 500 or so years ago. Very orthodox fellow. And this is what he says. The end of the gospel is to render us conformable to God, and if we may so speak, to deify us. Now, when you first read that, you may be like, whoa, you know, John Calvin's saying we're to become gods? That's not what he's saying. He goes on and says, not that we would become gods in our essence, but that we would have the qualities of God as the markers of our lives. He says, one with God as far as our capacities will allow. Now this makes sense when you go back to Genesis, because human beings were created to be God's image bearers. We were created in the image of God to reflect who God is. And so, of course, we are supposed to be godlike. Of course, we are supposed to reflect who God is. And this aligns exactly what, with what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. When it comes to the standards of the kingdom of God and how one might enter the kingdom of God, Jesus says at the end of Matthew 5 and Matthew 5.48, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, when you hear that, <laughs> that doesn't really strike you as good news because, of course, none of us are perfect. But we must understand that that is God's standard and expectation and end for us if we'll understand what His purpose for us is in Jesus Christ. If we don't see perfection as our end, what more often we will end up settling for is, well, we'll just try to be good enough. And that's what some people think. They, they think, well, well, I'll just try to be better than my neighbor, and so when God, uh, when I stand before God, my, you know, my good deeds will outweigh my my bad. God isn't interested in good enough. God is interested in perfection. He's interested in us being who we were created to be. 
Now, if we rest on our own efforts, we will despair of pursuing perfection because we know it cannot be reached. And so this is why, again and again, as human beings, we just settle for good enough. It's only when we can admit that none of us are good enough, that we need Jesus Christ, that we can then be freed, actually, in a kind of very ironic way, to not settle for just good enough, to not settle for a substandard form of human existence. Because when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're no longer depending on our power for our perfection. We're depending on the power that comes through the knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. And that's a work that, that work of perfection will be brought to completion at the day of Christ's return. If I die today, as, as far as my own development of character and all of that, like, I'm not perfect. Before God, I'm counted perfect because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm covered by His sacrifice. But what you and I need to know and understand is that it's not going to be just a mere covering in the end. You and I will be truly perfected. Jesus' work of salvation is not a mere covering, it's a cleansing. And so, that changes our frame of mind here today. We press on toward the end for which we were saved. Even if we know we'll come up short of perfection, we know that's the end that God has for us. And this is really exactly what Peter is exhorting us to do here. In verse 4, he says, Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Notice the purpose that God has for us here in Jesus Christ. It's so that we would participate in the divine nature, so that we may escape from the corruption that controls us. It's so that we may become new persons, have new selves. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24. He says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is what God has offered us in Jesus Christ. We can leave our past behind us, and we can take on an entirely new way of life. Jesus' way of life. And again, that's the end for which God saved us, is that we would be perfected, and to make it, I guess, more visual, so that we would be like Jesus. Jesus saved you so you would be just like him. That's the purpose. The Apostle John in 1 John 3, 2, speaking of, the, of that day when Christ returns, says this, Dear friends, now we are children of God. That's true. That's our present reality. We are children of God. But there's more to come, he says. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And I think the reality that John's speaking of here is twofold. is that we will have the resurrection body. We will be like Jesus in that sort of way. We will also have the complete character of Christ. When Christ returns, the work of redemption that began long ago, but the pinnacle of it was that the cross is brought full circle because God has reached the end for which he has saved us, that we would be made new. Now, again, all this is only possible because we are talking about divine power, not human power. 
is because of that divine power that even our transformation today is possible. And because of this, Peter does not hesitate to urge us to grow in our faith. Starting in verse 5, Peter introduces kind of a a litany of of things that should be added to, to our faith. He says, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. And he goes on. What, what this kind of indicates to us is that faith is the foundation for everything which would follow. Everything which follows faith is really the fruit of our faith in Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, we can see the relationship between goodness and faith. Because goodness is the visible sign of faith. This is why the Apostle James in James 2.26 can say, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Again, because if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that should result in a real change. Not perfection in the immediate, we know we're not perfect, but it should result in a change progressively more and more until that day in which Christ completes the work perfecting us. Besides goodness, Peter enjoins us to add knowledge. And the the value of knowledge is that it reinforces our faith. It leads us to trust God more. Um, And I think we experience this in human relationships. The more you know someone, the more you trust them. Now, again, kind of referring back to celebrating my wedding anniversary, you know, when Sarah and I said, I do, we obviously trusted one another because we knew each other. But I dare say I trust her more today than I did 10 years ago. And that ought to be how our relationship with God is that we are always growing in our knowledge of Him, and so we're always growing to trust Him more and more as we come to understand His faithfulness, His goodness, His his character. In addition to knowledge, Peter says that we should add self-control. When you think about self-control, at first glance you may not see any relationship between self-control and faith. But self-control is a sign of faith. Because when we lack self-control, what we're demonstrating is that our trust is in something else. If I'm always resorting to anger or to lust or to greed or to envy, I'm demonstrating that my faith is in those things. That I believe my anger, that my rage can solve something. That pleasure or material things can bring me security. If a a Christian really has self-control, it's because they are trusting completely in God. And they're not trusting in their power or in the powers of this world. Peter says to add perseverance. And and what perseverance really is, is faith under fire. It's fortitude. It's, It's that pressing on, hanging in there when the going gets tough. And this has great benefit to the body of Christ, to the local church. Because as people persevere, their example inspires faith in others. I've told some of you here who have gone through difficult things that even when it's difficult to understand the reason, the why behind everything, and we can completely admit we don't understand all the reasons, at the very least we can say this, that your perseverance through these difficult circumstances is encouraging the faith of others. I'm always encouraged to have more faith when I see all of you persevering through difficulties and various trials. 
In Hebrews 10, verses 36 through 39, the author of Hebrews speaks of how just important perseverance is for our faith. It says, You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. For in just a little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay. And But my righteous one will live by faith. I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. True faith perseveres. True faith does not wilt away in the sun. It kind of takes you to that parable of the sower and the seed and how some seeds grow up really quick, but then they wilt away when the sun comes or they're picked up by a bird before they can get into the ground very far. But true faith lasts. It perseveres. In addition to perseverance, Peter says, Godliness should be added. And at this point, we're saying, of course, because we've already talked about how this is really the point. This is the end of Christ's work of salvation, is that we would become like God, that we would truly be his children in every way. But then, when we think about godliness, we also have to think about how it's especially manifested. Sometimes I think, when we think about godliness and righteousness, Maybe some of us go back in our minds to some interactions we had with people in the past, especially when you're a kid, when you're a little kid, and maybe you knew someone that was kind of stuffy and just kind of like, you know, you shouldn't do this or that and stuff. And we, we think, and, and probably from our vantage points as kids, we, we didn't have a proper assessment of things. But sometimes when we think about righteousness and godliness, we think of someone that's kind of stiff like that. But that's not the true essence of godliness. The true essence of godliness is love. Because God is love. And so when we think about, well, how would godliness manifest itself here in the church? It manifests itself in our love for one another. And that's what Peter's talking about when we should add mutual affection. We need to care for each other from the heart. If I'm just coming here and I'm just like, I'm here for me, my spiritual life, to get fed for me, and I'm not concerned with what's going on with Joe or Jane over here, I'm completely missing the boat on why God has called me to be part of this body of Christ. But there's more than this as well. Not just merely mutual affection. Peter says... We should add love. And it's great how this really kind of caps off his list here because it's great for us to love one another and we need to do that. We absolutely need to do that. But love takes us beyond our brothers and sisters to those who do not have faith, who are still distant from God, enemies of God. And this is the heart of godliness because God loved us while we were yet his enemies, when we were unlovable. It's easy to love those who are lovable. How about loving those who hate you, who resist you? We can love because we have been loved. And we have faith in the love of God. And we have security in Him. And so we have no reason for fear or for anger because we are secure. And so we can radically love others. And so when we think about godliness being our end, we can also speak of loving like Jesus as being our end. In 1 John 4, verses 15 through 17, the apostle says, If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. So yes, again, by the end, our character will be completely perfected so that it can truly be said that we are like Jesus. But even so, as we look forward to that day when our sanctification would be complete, even so today, 
Our desire, our goal, our effort is to be like Jesus. And Jesus' life was defined by love. Now the point here of, of having all these qualities, Peter says, is that, and he says this in verse 8, is that if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This again is just a reminder that as we've been saved in Jesus Christ, yes, we have been forgiven of our sins, so we no longer have to worry about punishment, but we have been saved for a purpose. You can almost think of it being, we've been recycled, basically. We've been salvaged. And you salvage something not just so it would just take up space in your house so you would have a room just full of junk. You salvage something so it would be useful. This is why God has saved us, so that we would be useful in Jesus Christ. We've been redeemed so that we'd have a fruitful life in Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus says in John 15, verses 5 and verse 8. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So again, we see clearly here, it's not us, it's Jesus. And then he says in verse 8, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. That's what's characteristic of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. There's fruit being born out in your life. Disciples of Jesus don't look the same as when they first met Jesus. They no longer bear that bad fruit. Closing out with these with verses 9 through 11, Peter says that if we lack these qualities, if our faith isn't growing up in these ways, then we've basically missed the whole point. In verse 9, he says, But whoever does not have them, all these qualities we listed off, is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Earlier, I I kind of alluded to this, but the reality is, is that in Jesus Christ, we are saved not only that we would be cleansed from our guilt, but so that we would be cleansed from our sinfulness. Jesus came not only to deliver us from our condemnation, but from our condition, our sinful condition. The point was that we would be purified. In Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. God has redeemed and saved us in Jesus Christ so that he may call us his own people, so that we would be the kind of people that are eager to do what is good. Now, that's a particular characteristic there, having eagerness to do good. Because I know a lot of times we might begrudgingly do what is good and what is right. And there's lots of people from lots of religions who do that. What sets apart the Christian is that they are eager to do good. And they are eager because they love what God loves. What God intended to do in Jesus Christ was to remove us from the darkness and bring us into the light. Paul says in Colossians 1, verses 13-14, he says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins.
And so rather than living in the dark, rather than being blind, Peter is calling us to confirm our call and election. Now what does that word mean, confirm? What it means is Peter's calling us to show the world who we are. To make it clear that we are, in fact, God's people. So that the world would say, oh yeah, he or she is definitely one of those Christians. And when we think about a word like election, and if any of us are kind of tuned into theological discussion, sometimes that can get us to really fixate on the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism, and I'm saying those words, and some of you don't even know what I'm talking about, probably. Um, but it's the idea of do people freely choose by God's grace to put their faith in Christ, or is there only a certain select amount of people that are predetermined to be saved and no one else is. I'm not going to sort all of that out this morning. I'll say for my own part, I think that election is based on God's foreknowledge and that God sovereignly chose to create a world in which the most people would be saved by His grace. No one, and this is what all Christians, anyone who calls them a Christian, must confess this, is that no one comes to Jesus Christ by their own goodness. You only put your faith in Christ by a work of God's grace. And they slice that up differently, but all Christians must confess that. The real point here, though, isn't that our minds should really get fixated on that theological debate. It should really fixate on what does it mean for us to demonstrate that we are truly one of those who are called and elected by God to be counted among His people. You see, the sign of your election is your life. It's not some mysterious token that is revealed in some kind of unclear way. The sign of your election is your life. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 through 6, Paul says this, For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that He has chosen you. Paul's basically saying, we know that He has elected you. Chosen and elected are interchangeable there. Because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I know you're amongst the elect because of the way that you responded to the gospel. How you became like us, imitators of us, and because of the joy that you had in suffering. Now, a person only can have joy in the midst of suffering if they have that eagerness we were talking about, that eagerness to do good. The Thessalonians cannot take credit for this transformation of themselves. Paul says in his second letter to the Thessalonians of how it's God who makes us worthy of his, his calling. It's, it's his doing, not ours. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 11 through 12, he says, With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling. It's God who makes us worthy of His calling. And that by His power, He may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. Again, faith is the foundation for all these good deeds. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in Him, according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The point is Christ's glory. And if we have any share in glory, it's only because we're attached to Christ. Because we're with Jesus. And we're the beneficiaries of all that He's doing. It's not because of us. And this should come to some encouragement to us, I think, because 
when we speak of you know, leading a godly life, of, of per- pursuing that perfection, sometimes it can feel like, well, gee, I just don't, I, don't, I just keep messing up. It doesn't depend on you. It depends on God. And if you pray and you ask and you seek, He will transform you. Because Christ is making all things new. Now, if, if Peter is exhorting us here to make to this faith, to be adding these virtues to our faith, then it must be the case that we're able to not do that. <laughs> that we're also able to kind of resist going in the direction that we're called to go. I can almost think of it like this. Is even if you're someone who is truly saved, who has put their faith in Christ, even so, we can kind of put our paddle in the water as the canoe is trying to go down the river. We can get in the way of where God's trying to take us, to push us. Now again, I believe that if we are truly one of God's children, He will get us there, but we can go kicking and screaming. I know I've done that in my life, and I'm sure some of you can think of times in your own life where you've done things kicking and screaming, where you've taken two steps forward maybe, but one step back, and that's just kind of been the pattern of your life. Peter's saying, don't do that. Why do that? Rather, do these things. Because he says in verses 10 and 11, For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The Christian life can contain moments of stumbling, and a lot of times very early on in your faith, there's a, there's a lot of stumbling. But the idea is, is that as you are continuing to grow in the faith, as you're growing in goodness and knowledge and perseverance and godliness and self-control and all these things, you stop stumbling so much. And rather than just kind of scratching your way into the kingdom, you're going to walk straight in. Not, again, because of anything you've done, but because of the righteousness of Christ and what He's done in your life. You don't want to be one of those people where it's just like you're, you're saved by, by fire, by just going, going through things and not living the sort of life that God has called you to live in Jesus Christ. He'll save you regardless of your, of your past and all that. There's people who at the very end, on their deathbed, put their faith in Christ. And they're saved. They're counted among God's people, God's children. But imagine the rich reward you have. That at the, if, if you put your faith in Christ today, not only will you enter into the kingdom of God, but you will be able to experience that joy of knowing that you walked, you followed after Jesus Christ your whole life long. That's what Peter's inviting us into. That we might share in that sort of joy when Christ's kingdom comes. You see, you and I are given everything that we need to succeed. We're not missing the tools. Because God has given us His Son. He's enough. It's through Jesus that we can truly know God, that we can be in communion with God, that we can become like God. That was our purpose all along, but we derailed that by chasing our own idea of what it means to be like God, which instead made us into devils. The way back to God begins with faith. Trusting in Jesus as God and Savior, not ourselves. This faith itself is a gracious gift from God. We're so corrupted that on our own we would never have faith. 
This faith in Jesus is the starting point for all that God has for us. He's ready to give us goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love. We just need to go along with where He's taking us. We just need to stop dragging our paddle in the water. He is taking us somewhere new. Out of darkness and into His kingdom. Not just in the future, but today. God has given us all the tools we need to succeed. There is no need for us to stumble. So then, let's show the world what God has given us. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank You that through Jesus Christ we can know You. We thank You that we can know Your power. That we can know Your nature. Not just abstractly, Father, or rationally, but personally as You come to transform our lives so that You make us into the sorts of people You created us to be. Father, we pray that You would make us godly as we put our faith in Jesus Christ. That we would depend on His power just as we have depended in His righteousness for our salvation. Help us to not forget, Father, the purpose that, for which You saved us which is that we would be truly Your people. A people who are eager to do good. Father, we pray that You would help us to not fall back into darkness. To not be nearsighted, only looking at the things that this world offers us and distracts us with. But rather, Father, we would keep our eyes fixed on Christ and the kingdom which is coming. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon that I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Situate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through First and Second Peter. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.